This is part two of our series on the anointing. Uh, we're going to read the scripture here in a second out of the book of Exodus. Just to give you sort of a general idea, the anointing is a concept and it is based on, it becomes a concept, it starts out as a physical thing, an object if you will, it's an actual oil that has five ingredients, a base ingredient of olive oil and four additional spices. So what we're doing right now as a church is we are studying the spices and then at the end we will study the oil itself, the actual olive oil. And there's a purpose to why we're, why we're studying that and uh, we'll get into that here in a moment. First I want to point out one thing about our key scripture and then we uh, will come back to it at the end. Now me and you, post-resurrection, we read Matthew 16, 24, it makes perfect sense. We, we think we know what Jesus Christ is saying. He said to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Well, that makes sense because we have a very distinct connection between Jesus Christ and the cross, right? But put yourself in the shoes of the disciples at this point in time. Walking with Jesus Christ, who has not yet been persecuted fully, who has not yet been crucified, who has not yet been resurrected, and he turns to his disciples and he says, if any man will follow me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow after me. What does the cross mean to somebody before Jesus Christ has been crucified? Before there's a connection between Jesus and the cross. The most significant part of this scripture that you've probably heard a number of times is not what is being said, it is when it is being said. The timing here is everything. Part of what I believe the answer is to why he said this when he said it, uh, we'll discover at the end of the sermon. Uh, right now I want to share with you a slide um, about the, the, uh, the one that we follow. Everybody say Jesus. Jesus is a name, as we've shared the past couple of weeks. It's not a correct rendition of a name, but it works. There are no J's in Hebrew. Jesus was a Jewish man. His name, if you were going to pronounce it uh, in English, so to speak, you would say Joshua at best, but you still have a J there. Uh, really, the way you would pronounce it from the Hebrew text is Yeshua or Yahashua. That is an actual name. It means Jehovah, my salvation, which again is wrong because you have another J. What you would literally say is Yahweh, my salvation. But to put it in the context of what most of us understand, Jehovah, my salvation, that is the definition. That is what the name Jesus means. That is a name. Christ, however, is not a name. We say Jesus Christ because we read it that way in the word of God. And most of us don't hear about it or study it either at all or until we're a little older. And what you realize is Christ is not a name. It is a title. And this is what it means. Christos literally means, and if you're familiar with looking up words in Greek or Hebrew, a lot of times you have a paragraph of a definition, and you have multiple different words that it can mean. With Christos or Christ, it's one word. It means anointed. Everybody say anointed. Anointed. Why do I want you to see that? Because modern day Americana, uh, modern day English, modern day living, new age as we called it earlier, Nobody walks around on a daily basis talking about how they need to be anointed. Anointed is not part of our daily vocabulary. 
You could go to church for decades and possibly never even hear the term anointed or anointing. And it's super duper sad because when you're saying that you are a Christian, you're literally saying you are anointed. But you didn't know you were saying that. Some of you didn't know that until right now. Christian means little Christ. Literally means little anointed one. What if I I walked up to you right now, those of you that are, are of age, anywhere over the age of 16, and I told you, I dangled some keys in front of you and said, hey, <coughs> you have a brand new uh, Corvette that's been sitting out in your garage for the past 10 years. But you didn't know that you had this garage and you didn't know that you had this Corvette, but you've had it the whole time. What good did that Corvette do you? Has it done you an ounce of good? Super exciting to know that you have a brand new Corvette. Super disappointing to know you could have been driving it for the past 10 years and you didn't know that it was there. And now even though it's new, it's not new anymore. Because it's 10 years old. That's sad and that's disappointing. That's where we sit, a lot of us as Christians. Do you know the day that you accepted Jesus Christ, you accepted his anointing, and you became anointed? And do you know that the anointing is a very real, very powerful, very pungent, very amazing thing? And you've been sitting on it, and you've been sitting in it for years, but you've never actually turned the ignition on. You've never driven it. You've never partaken of it. You have no idea what it actually feels like, what it actually means, or what it can actually do in your life. The good news is you have it. The sad news is you might have never used it. The extra good news is, where's John? I got to say it now. I saved 15% of my car insurance. Where's John? Where's John at? He wasn't even here for it. There he is. How'd you get so short? Oh, all right. I'll see how, I'll see how it is. Uh, no, the extra good news is you're going to learn about it today. And from this point on, you can drive that Corvette if you want to. Everybody say anointed. The Bible says, I'm going to give you a brief rundown, and I'm going to talk really fast, and I hope that it makes sense, a brief rundown of how we study and how we understand the Bible at Edgewater Church and how I believe everybody should read and understand the Bible, and that's from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The New Testament tells us there are a couple of points to why the Old Testament exists on this day and age and how we're supposed to use it. Point number one is that it's supposed to be our schoolmaster, not followed to a T, but ready and at for teaching, for understanding the concepts of the New Testament. Let me give you a scholarly breakdown. Theologians say that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. In other words, God spent many thousands of years and a lot of time with his Old Testament people, making them go through routine after routine after routine after story after story after story, pounding away in them the character of God, the character of man, the plan of God, the need for salvation, the need for redemption, physically applying blood, physically applying oil, physically doing things to see how they work so that Jesus Christ could show up 4,000 years later usher in a new covenant and say all this stuff that we were doing for thousands of years, this is what it means in the spiritual realm. This is the reality of it. This is how it changes your life. You don't actually have to follow the Ten Commandments, which are actually 613. You don't have to follow them to a T. What you have to do is love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord God Almighty with all of your heart, mind, strength, and soul. Well, how do you do that? The way that he said to do it in the Old Testament. You give offerings. You give sacrifice. You apply blood. You apply oil. You stay in the tabernacle. You go to the temple. You do all of these physical things in a spiritual way. 
In other words, Romans chapter 1, verse 20, God says, The spiritual or invisible things of the world, pay attention, are clearly seen. Invisible things, clearly seen, being understood by the things that he made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that we're without excuse. In other words, he's saying, you cannot physically see what's going on inside of your own soul when somebody is preaching or teaching my word. So I'm going to call it a seed because you can physically see a seed. And whenever I made man in the Old Testament, I made him out of dirt. You can physically see what happens when a seed goes into dirt. He said, my word is my water. When you apply water to a seed that was buried in the dirt and the light is the spirit of God and the light shines upon the seed and the water goes into the ground, then it can produce fruit. It can begin to grow. It needs to be nurtured for a little while. It needs to be in the right place at the right time, but eventually photosynthesis takes place and it's able to feed itself the longer that it remains in my light and in my world and in my presence. So you can't see those things happening physically, so God gave you a physical example of what's going on spiritually or invisibly. Does that make sense? So when we come to something like the anointing, the reason why we need to go to the Old Testament and study the oil itself is so that we can see physically what was God doing that needs to be happening spiritually in our lives. Amen? God bless you. I say God bless you because only he can really do that. Anyway, um, let's go to Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Just get a little bit more of an idea of why this is important, who you are as a Christian. Philippians 4, 13 says something very interesting. Remember, in Matthew, we just saw it really wasn't what was being said, it was when It was said that's really significant. We're going to come back to that in Philippians 413. It's not as much what is being said as it is how it is said. We've all heard a million times. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. That is a powerful, encouraging, positive scripture. You may write in the middle of something difficult, and that's one that very popular scripture to pull up to encourage you, to literally strengthen you. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. What does that really mean, though? When you're in the middle of something, and you remember Philippians 4.13, and you say, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me, I want to tell you a secret. You know that one day when you decided to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, which I hope you've done, if you haven't done Please see us at the end of service. It's very simple. You can do that today, and your life can change literally forever. Whenever you decided to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he asked for a few things. There's some sacrifices that have to be made. There's some life decisions that have to be made. On the outset, a lot of people think that it looks like it's undesirable, but we know that it's very desirable, especially the more of your life that you give to him. What a lot of Christians fail to understand, a lot of people fail to understand, is immediately upon the moment that you give your life to God, there are some perks that you get. There are some things you have access to that you didn't have access to before. Have you guys ever seen, I'm I'm sure you've seen a movie or maybe even in real life, uh, a, a line of people standing outside of a club just 
just yards and yards and, and, and hundreds of people trying to get into a popular club and their names have to be on a list and you can only get on if, you're, if your name's on the list and then all of a sudden somebody walks up, goes right to the front of the line, talks to the bouncer and walks in in front of everybody else. That's called access. You know how they gain that access? They drop the name. I don't know what name it was. You don't know what name it was. It doesn't matter. We're not trying to get into a club. We're trying to get into the kingdom of God. And the Bible says there's only one name, right? Only one name. Acts chapter 4, verse number 12. Only one name under heaven given to men by which we can be saved. Only one name that grants you access. Do you understand you've been given a very powerful name? When you've been given the name of Jesus, when you've been given the title of Christian, you get to walk right to the front of the line in so many situations in life. You get to drop that name and gain access into something that it takes other people forever and maybe never get access into. But the saddest part is, not only did you not drive that new Corvette to that kingdom, but you're standing in the back of the line. And you have the name that grants you access, but you're waiting behind everybody else who doesn't even have the name because somebody didn't tell you, somebody didn't encourage you, that it's not just a scripture. You don't stand at the back of the line and go, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You walk to the front of the line and you apply that bad boy and you gain access into that place but what you have to understand as a christian is how do i do that it's not enough to know the term anointing and it's not enough to know that you've been saved if that's all that we needed the bible would be like three pages long there's more to it because god wants you to understand more The Bible says that Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith, he's not the author of confusion. It's not that he wanted it to be so complicated. But once upon a time, somebody ate some fruit and things got weird. Right? So now here we are. And it's a little more complicated. All God wanted people to do was hang out, have fun, name some animals, and don't eat that fruit. Very simple. He's not the author of confusion. But now that we're in the spot that we're in, He's got some complicated ways of getting us out. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Why is that so? Why is it so weird or why is it so different the way that it's phrased? Because if it was talking about a person, it should say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If we get the scripture back up, it doesn't say that. It says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Everybody say which should have done that. shouldn't say that in church. W-H-I-C. Which. <laughs> Remind me next time I do that not to do that. Okay. I do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Why does it say instead of who, why does it say which? Because it's not talking about a person. Remember, Christ said the word means what? Anointed. So on one hand, yes, it is talking about Jesus, but specifically it's talking, in other words, you can say, I can do all things through the anointing which strengthens me. So it's important to understand what it means to be anointed. That's a little bit different, right? If you're standing in the back of that line, you're thinking, I can do all things through the anointing. We might go, oh, well, maybe I need to apply the anointing because then I could do all things. So that's what we're trying to learn about. The anointing. Specifically, on the title slide, you'll see that the title of the series is called The Scent of Anointing. I want to talk to you about that real quick. Olive oil doesn't have a very strong smell. 
having to love it, also having to be Italian. So to me, it has an amazing smell, but I can understand how people could say it doesn't have much of a smell. It's okay. You don't have to be Italian to be saved. It helps. But there are, I'm just saying, they're named in the Bible. Read your Bible, Acts chapter 10. Okay, try to find another nationality. I'm just saying. Anyway, sorry. I have the microphone. I get to do that. However, when you read, in fact, let's let's just go ahead and read Exodus chapter 30, starting in verse number 22. Moreover, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take also unto thee principal spices of pure myrrh, 500 shekels. The myrrh is what we studied last week. Sweet cinnamon, half as much, 250 shekels. And of sweet calamus, 250 shekels. And of cassia, 500 shekels. After the shekel of the sanctuary, and of oil, olive, King James, very weird, olive oil, a hen, and thou shalt make it a holy oil of ointment, an ointment compound after the art of the apothecary, it shall be a holy anointing oil. So when you look at all the ingredients, you have the base of olive oil, but the other four ingredients are specifically called sweet spices. I don't know if you've ever smelled myrrh. Or frankincense. She has, she has oils with her. Carol has some with her. At the end of service, if you want to come by and just see what some of these things smell like. I had one uh, while we were praying earlier. That's all I smell right now. Probably because I shouldn't have touched my face, but I did. It burned a little bit, but it smells good. It's worth it. A little sacrifice. Is my face red? Yeah. Anyway. Um, so we have two ladies that um, either sell or collect those oils. You have to ask them. I don't know exactly what they do, but I've seen their oils and I've obviously smelled the oils and they're amazing. Um, we have some from Israel that we brought back when we went. It's, it's pretty amazing stuff. Um, I don't know how it's not, I don't, I mean, we have so many fragrances, colognes and perfumes and that sell like crazy in all these department stores. I mean, you put one of those things of that like legitimate oil from Israel, the frankincense and everything in it, that stuff smells way better. I don't know how they're not just selling that like crazy. Anyway, um, when you get to uh, Exodus 30, you read about the ingredients and the anointing oil. Uh, later on in the Bible, uh, God passes a law that we're not supposed to, or nobody at a certain point is supposed to try to recreate this specific oil. So I'm not sure that we have any anything that we can really go to and, and, and smell or apply that is exactly like the oil in Exodus chapter 30. But you could just imagine the cinnamon, the calamus, the acacia, the olive oil all together. It's going to have a real distinct, a real specific aroma. God could have used anything in the entire world to put this oil together. He used five specific ingredients for five specific reasons. What I want you to understand is that God, who is the creator of all things, he does everything for a purpose. He does everything with meaning. God never accidentally did anything. God never had to wonder about what he was going to do. God's never made a mistake. He doesn't waste time. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't work in the arbitrary. Everything that God does, he does with reason. When he created mankind, when he created me and you, he created us with five senses. 
When he created the olive oil, he said, I want you to use five ingredients. When he created the ministry, he said, I want there to be five positions. When he created the tabernacle, he said, I want you to hold it together with five bars. When he created his New Testament, he did it with four gospels in the book of Acts. Everything other than those five books are letters written. Those five books are distinct. When he created the Old Testament, he first created the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All of that is by design. None of that is arbitrary. None of that is accidental. There's something about the number five. The number five is a number of spiritual unity, which we've gone through before, but it's also a number of access. How do we know that? Because there were specifically five entrances into the temple that God said he wanted one on the north, one on the east, one on the west, and two on the south. So there were five entrances into the temple. Then the Bible says, know you not that you are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Are you still out there? Amen. Are you with me? Pay attention. Remember physical things to explain spiritual things. Is it a coincidence that when he had Solomon create the temple, he wanted five entrances? And then when he created you and said, you are the temple of the Holy Ghost, you have five senses? Five ways that things from the outside world can make their way into you. The Bible says in Proverbs, not of the book of Proverbs, but Proverbs of old, say that the eyes and the ears are the windows to the soul. We know that that's true. But all of our five senses are a way that we gain access or the world gains access to us. When it comes to this oil, all five are present. It has a certain texture. When you touch it, it definitely does. If you were to taste it, it has a distinct flavor. When all of the ingredients are mixed together the right way, it has a distinct look. Whenever the anointing is applied, it's always at a specified service with special words being spoken. There's a distinct sound when somebody is anointed. But above all is the aroma, the scent of the anointing. He wanted the sweet spices He wanted a certain smell. Is it a coincidence that science knows, that we know, that the strongest of all five senses is the sense of smell? They say that that sense is is most distinctly connected to your memory and your frontal lobes and any other sense that you have. I know we've all been there before. There are smells that can take you back to a certain place in time. If somebody's wearing cool water, Yeah, you know, if you graduated in the 90s, you know. (laughs) Takes you right back. Takes me right back to to my bedroom that I grew up in, my high school days. Right back to that house, right back to that time period. People have a certain smell. You can walk into a room and not even see anybody and you can smell them. Maybe it's the perfume they've worn for the past five years. Maybe it's whatever. People's homes have a certain smell. Sometimes you know it as soon as you walk up to the front door. You forgot it before you got there. Then you grab the door handle and you went, oh, God. You walk in, yep. Same house, same people, same smell. I'm not a cat person. That's the main reason. I'm not saying that if you are a cat person that your house stinks or used to or anything. You, You probably have it under control. They've invented ways to do that, and I'm sure you're really good at it. I'm not putting forth that effort. Just get a dog and keep him outside. Or inside and clean. Okay. Jeez. Anyway, 
smell, it's very, very, it's a very strong, people know that it, when you walk into uh, their house or you sit down in their car or you walk next to them, uh, they know, you, you can tell almost where somebody's been. You can't tell what Mexican restaurant they were in, but you know that's where they just came from. You don't know what bar they were in, but if somebody sits down at a bar for long enough, it doesn't matter if they smoke or not. You're going to smell that all day long. It sticks with you. There's a lot that goes along with smell. Very strong. It doesn't affect a blind man. It doesn't affect a deaf man. The anointing can be sensed by all people. In one way, shape, or form. God specifically wants us to have the aroma of anointing. Just like somebody leaves a smoke-filled bar and sits down in your car, you know, immediately. When you apply the anointing, if you live in that thing, if you breathe in that thing, if you dwell underneath that canopy, when you step into a room, people would notice. When you sit down in somebody's car, it's evident. They might not know what to call it. They might not understand exactly what it is that's different. But you've all met Christians and I've met Christians and you've had people say to you maybe at a time when you were praying a little bit more or reading a little bit more or spending a little bit more time with God, there's something different about you. You've met somebody, there's something different about them. Sometimes when you walk into a church or you walk into a ministry, you can tell immediately who the ministers are. You can tell who the pastors are. You can tell who the teachers and the preachers are because they've spent time with God. They have ministry about them. There should be an anointing about them. There's something about the aroma, the scent of anointing. And if other people around you can't sense it, that's fine. The main thing, the main person that you want to understand that you have spent time in the presence of God is the enemy himself. And he is very, he's very keen to the aroma of the anointing. He doesn't like it. Because the Bible says it is the one thing that can break the bondage and the chains of sin. Let me try it like this. The Bible also says in Psalm 103, oh, I get it mixed up, Psalm 103 or Psalm 130, how beautiful it is when brethren dwell together. It'll be the first verse. It might even be Psalm 133. That sounds right. When brethren dwell together in unity, it's like the oil that ran down the beard of Aaron. That oil is the anointing oil. Unity brings forth the anointing oil. What does that mean to you and me? I believe Jesus Christ said once upon a time, it is the love that you have one for another that will distinguish you as my disciples. You want people to know that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ? It is the love that you have. It's the way that you treat people. There's a distinction in somebody that is anointed. There's a distinction in somebody that is a Christian. Because to be Christian means to be anointed. They can see it in the way that you act. They can hear it in the way that you speak. They can feel it in the warmth of your embrace, your handshake, or your hug. You can almost smell it. Because that scent, that anointing, is so strong and it's so different. Yes, we're talking about 
metaphorically a scent. But physically, there are, there are ways you can tell. So let's get into ingredient number two, the cinnamon. Let me revamp for you real quickly. Ingredient number one, the myrrh. There was a lot that we talked about with the myrrh. The main thing that I want you to realize as we go into the cinnamon is the way that they harvest the myrrh. The main thing about the cinnamon is the way they harvest the cinnamon as well, two very different ways. The way that initially back in the day they would harvest the myrrh is they would go out to this gum tree in Arabia that produced the myrrh, the way that trees produce sap or syrup, like a the way that they get maple syrup these days, sort of similar to the way um, that they would get myrrh. Uh, back in the day, it, it literally, the best myrrh, the most applicable and the most expensive, just like olive oils are different, virgin, extra virgin, so on and so forth, is the myrrh that, that just naturally seeps out of the tree and just, just drips onto the ground. And they could put buckets and they could put containers and catchers to catch that and they, and they do, but you cannot produce enough myrrh to use commercially by just waiting for the tree to seep it out naturally. So what they would do is they would literally take things that look like whips and chains and they would scar the tree and they would beat the tree. So the more lashes they gave it and the deeper they could go, the more myrrh that they could get out of the tree versus just waiting on the tree to bleed the myrrh out itself. And of course, using that natural example into the spiritual realm, what that represented was the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who knelt down in the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed until it were great drops of blood. And little by little, capillaries burst in his head. And as he was sweating, his sweat became blood and it dripped out a little bit at a time. But as soon as that innocent blood hit the ground, we were redeemed from the curse. And he came to give that to us. He came to give us his blood. He came to give us redemption, but we couldn't get it quick enough. We couldn't get it all and we couldn't get it right away. So pretty quickly after he prayed in that garden and after he dropped a little bit of blood from his forehead, the Roman soldiers busted their way into the garden and Judas walked up to him and gave him the kiss of betrayal and they grabbed him and they began to beat him and they began to rip his beard out and they began to bludgeon him and torture him and, the, and exactly what they would do to the murder tree. They took him to the whipping post and that blood that was already coming out a little bit at a time, they started whipping him and beating him and lashing him and bruising him and scarring him until... They were able to take massive amounts of what he was going to give anyway. Same they do to the myrrh. That's the broken body and blood of Jesus Christ. We come to the cinnamon. And the cinnamon they get in a very different way. First thing I want you to realize about cinnamon is that the cinnamon that you use these days is not necessarily always cinnamon. They say worldwide cinnamon, they produce 25 to 35,000 tons a year, but only 10,000 tons is what they call true cinnamon. The rest is a mixture of other spices and cinnamon gotten in different ways, not true pure cinnamon. The only way to get the real cinnamon is a method called coppicing. I'm going to read this to you real quick. A traditional method of woodland management which takes advantage of the fact that many trees make new growth from the stump or the roots if cut down. In a coppiced wood, young tree stems are repeatedly cut to the near-ground level, and in subsequent years, many new shoots will emerge. After a number of years, the coppiced tree or stump is ready to be harvested, and the cycle begins again. 
This is how they do the trees that produce the bark, that produce cinnamon. They cut them down on purpose that they would, through years of application of time, bring forth new growth. And when that new growth is just at the right point, they cut it down again. And that way they keep the bark coming back year after year after year. And the, the smell and the taste of the cinnamon remains true. Coppicing maintains trees at a juvenile stage. Everybody say trees. Cinnamon is called the sweet bark. A regularly coppiced tree will never die of old age. Some stumps may therefore reach immense age. The age is estimated from the diameter. Some are so large, perhaps as large as 5.4 meters across. They are thought to have been continuously coppiced for centuries upon centuries. Coppice stems are characteristically curved at the base. This curve occurs as the competing stems grow out from the old stump in the early stages of the cycle. Then up towards the sky as the canopy closes. The curve may allow the identification of timber and archaeological sites It'll let people know whether a specific wood has been coppiced or whether it is a natural or a virgin tree. That speaks pretty heavily to me about what the cinnamon represents. I want to go to the book of Acts. Chapter 5, verse 30. book of Acts chapter 5 verse 30 says very simply, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you slew and hanged on a tree. So one term in the Bible given for the cross of Calvary is the tree. I want to take you to a story in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 15 Verse number 22. Just keep all of this in mind. It's going to come together here in a moment. Exodus 15, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. They went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Three days. What does three days make you think of? What, what else happened over a period of three days? The resurrection of Jesus Christ after he was crucified on the tree, the cross, right? Verse 23. When they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, they named, the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. Everybody say a tree. Everybody say three days. When he had cast the tree into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made for them a statue of an ordinance, and there he proved them. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says, You being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, as he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Verse 14 blotting out all the handwriting, everybody say the word, of ordinances that were against us. That's the law of the Old Testament, which was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Everybody say the tree. 
And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Verse 16, let therefore no man judge you in meat, drink, or respect of a holy day or a new moon or the Sabbath days. And it goes on and on. The point is, in the beginning, the word of God, which we read or we're going to see in a little bit, is called the water of the word of God. That water was bitter. Because there was a handwriting of ordinances that was against me and you. That said, thou shalt not, but you already have. Thou shalt not, but you're going to do it again. Thou shalt not, but your family's already done it. The curses and the sins of the father are passed down through the blood to generation upon generation. There's no way around it. It's written against you. You'll never be good enough. You can't come into the presence of God because you are unclean. The only way to come into his presence is to fulfill his law. But no man can fulfill his law. So for a long time, it was a bitter word that imputed sin unto you and to me. But then 4,000 years later, there was one who John the Baptist saw coming across the, the desert side. And he said, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And this Lamb of God said, no longer do you have to try to fulfill and be good enough because I am perfect. I am sinless. I love you. I will die for you. My blood will cover you and you will be forgiven. And what was once the bitter word of God through the sweet wood of the cross became waters that were drinkable. And this is the typology that we see in Exodus chapter 15. They came upon the bitter waters and they couldn't drink it. Everybody say the word of God. We couldn't take it. We couldn't drink it because we couldn't fulfill it. We couldn't walk in it and therefore we had little hope. But God said, take this tree and cast it into the water. Jesus said, if any man follows me, let him take his cross. Everybody say the sweet bark. Deny himself and follow me daily. Take that wood, cast it into the bitter water and try it again. That's what he did for me. That's what he did for you. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. When you go to get cinnamon, the second ingredient of the anointing oil, you coppice, you cut. The word covenant means to cut. You go into an agreement with the cinnamon. You cut it down to the stump, but not so far that it dies. I'm going to let you live. You keep providing me with this sweet incense. You keep providing me with the sweet bark. We're going to go into an agreement. Something I'm going to do for you and something you're going to do for me. And they cut it down and they let it regrow. And they cut it down and they let it regrow. And as long as they treat it correctly, it never dies. What it produces never goes away. What it has to give, it gives continually. It's a representation of the cross of Jesus Christ. The word of God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Cut with me. Go into covenant with me. You can take me all the way down to the stump. Just don't walk away. Don't turn your back. Don't leave me and I won't leave you. We'll keep coming back. And it says what happens when you coppice a woodland area is there's this curve that occurs as the stems grow back out in the early stages of the cycle. And then up towards the sky, 
as the canopy closes. This curve allows for identification. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. Revelation 21.5 says, He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, everybody say, anointed. Therefore, if any man be anointed, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. The original tree stump is passed away. And behold, all things have become new. It used to have a certain shape. Now it looks different. There's an identifying mark. The way that it looks has changed. It gives forth a certain odor. It gives forth a certain texture. There's a certain sound that is produced when it's harvested. And when you look at it, it's different. It's been coppiced. It's been cut. It's gone into covenant. And it will never die. Amen? I want to take kind of a left turn. And we'll end on this thought. (coughs) Excuse me. Jeremiah 22.14 says that saith you can read the first 13 verses get an idea of the story the story is not a good one I will build a wide house and large chambers he's talking about a person using them metaphorically for a nation and how they're going to try to do something different than how God said to do it and he said, uh, they said, I'll build me a wide house and large chambers. I will cut out windows. I will seal it with cedar <clears throat> and I will paint it with vermilion. I'm going to come back to that. Ezekiel 23 and 14 says, and she increased her whoredoms for when she saw again, this is a, this is a type of a nation. For when she saw men portrayed upon the wall, the images of the Chaldeans portrayed with vermilion. So there's a little journey that we go on the word of God that starts with that word painted that we read in Jeremiah. That is the only other Hebrew word that is translated for anointing other than the original word for anointing. It's only translated as anointed once. It's translated as painted a few other times. Here it's translated as painted in Jeremiah 22:14. It has a different definition than the traditional anointing. Sealed with cedar and painted with vermilion. Then we look at the word vermilion, it only appears twice in the Bible, once in Jeremiah, the other time in Ezekiel, where it talks about the images of the Chaldeans portrayed with vermilion, and the Chaldeans are enemies of God. So I want to kind of leave you with this thought. To be anointed literally means to be covered. It means... When they would take the anointing oil, they would pour it on the head of the person that was being anointed, and it would cover them, and cover them all over. Run down the beard of Aaron, as we read in Psalm 133. They would rub it on, they would smear it on, 
And like oil does, it's, it finds its way into the pores and it stays on you. It's literally a covering. What the anointing is to do metaphorically is to do a work on your flesh that you can't do that only God can do. In other words, if I want to uh, use myself as an example, even right now, but especially earlier in the service, there's nothing about me that I should walk up to the front of a congregation and say, I, I know some people need to come up here to the altar right now. I, I don't know that. There's nothing naturally inside of a human being that does that. But if I'm able to walk under the anointing of God, I can feel it's a little bit different. God can do a work on me and with me that I would not be able to do myself. When I lay hands on you and pray for you, if I have a word for you from God and it resonates and it's true in your life and it's specific and it's what you needed to hear, that's not me. I don't know that. I don't have that special skill. I've never been psychic. I've lost the lottery a lot of times. <laughs> Lots of times. It's, it's not me. It's the anointing. That's what one, that's one thing that the anointing does. You don't have to be a minister to be anointed. We've gone over this before. I don't know what it is that you're called to do. I don't know what it is that you're passionate about. I know that most people walk all the way through a life and never are fulfilled in what they're doing. They find even something they're good at, but after a while, they don't like doing it anymore. They find something that they kind of like, and then a few weeks later, they don't like it anymore. They become this person that works here, this person that does that, and they find little bits and pieces of joy and happiness along the way, and they, they just they fight it out until they can't fight it out anymore. It's how long you can hack it until you die. <clears throat> I don't mean to be so encouraging, but that's how it happens a lot of times. What the anointing does is it does something in you and on you that you couldn't do by yourself. And it makes everything a little bit more exciting. I know for a fact, because I've gone to a lot of churches, that I, I love preaching and I love pastoring. But without the anointing, I would bore myself to death. Because as much as I love God, as much as I love church, I've gone to churches where it's hard for me to stay awake. And I love the word of God. And they were nice buildings and they were, oh, hello. They were nice people. They picked up my water when I dropped it. All kinds of cool stuff. But just, and that's just what I do. But whatever it is that you do, do it as an anointed one. Do it underneath the anointing. I don't care if you're a school teacher. You can bring something into that classroom that nobody else can bring. You can bring something into that classroom that you can't bring. If you work in an office, let the office be anointed. You know what's boring? Sitting in an office all day. You know what's not boring? Sitting in an office and people walk in and they get saved. That's not quite as boring. You know what? You can be looking at the clock and like, oh my God, it's, oh my, oh my God. You feel like it's an hour, it's been five minutes. You're watching the clock, watching the clock. Have you guys ever seen like an old movie where the people just stand guard? Could you imagine that job just standing guard? What would you be thinking all day long? You stand guard. For like 10 hours, you know exactly what you'd be doing. You'd be going, I'm not going to look, 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 I'm not going to look. Oh my God. I'm not going to look, I'm not going to look, I'm not going to look, I'm not going to look. All day long. That'd be so boring. That's what it's like sitting in an office, but you could be sitting there bored to death and then somebody walks in and God gives you a word. They need prayer right then, but they weren't going to tell you. They just came in to pay a bill or do whatever people do when they walk into your office. 
And you thought it was just going to be another boring type on the computer, do your thing. But their aunt just got diagnosed with cancer. And you don't know them very well, but five minutes later you do. They just got diagnosed with a terminal illness and they can't find a good church. Their kid's in a situation that's not that bad, but they just need somebody to, to grab their hand and tell them it's not that bad. You don't know that, but the anointing does. Because it's called Christ. And Christ knows that. And he can live in you and he can live on you. And you can do everything that you do underneath the anointing. We're all going to live and we're all going to die one day. That's fine with me. I'm ready to get to heaven. And on my deathbed, I want to have stories. I want to be able to wow people with what God did when I went here. What God did when I was over there. How he set this up for me. How he did this for me. How I saw this miracle. How I saw that miracle. I don't have to be a millionaire. I don't have to be well known. I don't have to be famous. I just want to watch God move because it never gets old. And underneath the anointing, it always happens. But there are some of us that are Christians that are either scared of the anointing because we don't know how it's going to make the people around us react. We don't know if they like that smell. Some of our friends, some of our family, that might not be their particular cup of tea. So we'd rather just be painted. You're going to be covered one way or the other. This pseudo word for anointing that shows up in Jeremiah 22, it's translated as painted. Kind of the same thing. Painting is a covering. It doesn't smell as good. You ever sniffed paint? Do not answer that question. (laughs) It doesn't smell very good, and then it does. And then it does. No, I'm just kidding. But you understand the difference between an oil full of myrrh, cinnamon, callus, cassia, frankincense type stuff a cologne, a perfume that you'll spray on and walk around all day and people will tell you how good you smell versus paint. Those are the two options that you have as a Christian. You can be anointed or you can be painted. I say that with confidence because of the word vermilion, which is a very specific word. It means crimson or scarlet, and it comes from one place in the Greek the root K-I-N-N in the word cinnabar, which is not cinnamon, but close. It's like a fake representation. Remember how I told you 35,000 tons of cinnamon, but only 10,000 is real? 25,000, 2,500,000, 25 million Christians. 10 million are anointed. 15 million are painted. Which one are you going to be? Because some people, even when they get covered by that red, painted by that blood, they still portray the image, Ezekiel 23, of an enemy of God. Doesn't mean they're not going to... God's enemies, yes, they don't go to heaven, but it doesn't mean that, that they're not going to heaven because the enemy of God is your flesh. Sometimes you walk around like the enemy of God. You're really not, but your flesh takes control. At that point, you're not under the anointing. You're just painted. Doesn't smell as good. Not quite as powerful. 
It doesn't seep into the pores. It dries on the outside and eventually chips away and isn't any good. Our worship team would go ahead and come up today. This afternoon. I'm going to end with this thought. So when it comes to the myrrh, what should we walk away with? Ingredient number one. We should walk away with this. God saying with the myrrh, we know it represents sacrifice because we know it represents the broken body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? Are you still awake? Everybody wake up for like two more minutes. This is my final closing. I think. So it's not with the myrrh. It's not what you give him. It's how you give it to him. That was skill. Jesus Christ knelt down in the garden and his sweat turned into blood. Literally, he bled on the ground. But Isaiah 53 already told us that that's not going to be enough. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was wounded. He was accounted as a man of sorrows. He was beaten, scarred beyond recognition. That's the prophecy of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. What God needed was his blood, but he wasn't just allowed to drip a little bit out of his forehead and say, okay, here you go. It's not just what you give God, it's how you give it to him. So many of us as Christians, we want to walk up to the front of an altar or a congregation, or maybe you want to stand in the back, or maybe you did it on your own, maybe you do it at your house, you get down on your knees and you pray the sinner's prayer, and you tell God you're going to give him your life, and then you walk away. Now, God is good. I'm not here to tell you that you're not going to heaven, but I am going to tell you this. If you want to walk in the anointing, ingredient number one dictates that you don't get to do that. You can say that, but there's a certain way that he wants it from you. And the way that he wants it generally is going to hurt and squeeze a little bit more than the way in which you thought of to give it. Well, I'll just give you my life and then I'll go on back on about my life. And then I'll tell people I'm a Christian and nothing about me will really change. Maybe it'll change for like a week or two, but I'll just be nice to people. I'll love people. I'll go to church every once in a while and I'll tell people I'm a Christian. Well, that's all good and well. And I might see you in heaven. I think that I will and I hope that I do and I hope that you're right. But you know what? If all we're going to do is get saved and go to heaven... I've already told God he can take me now if that's all there is. And I'm cool with that because heaven sounds great. But let's go ahead and go. I don't know what I'm here for. But I believe the Bible says there's a lot more to it than that. I believe Jesus said in John 10, 10, there's an enemy that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came to give you life and life more abundantly. I believe that Jesus Christ said, I've got a power for you right now. I've got a down payment on your inheritance. I've got this thing called the Holy Ghost. I've got this anointing. I've got this power. I've got this entrance, this access into my kingdom. And there are miracles and there are signs and there are wonders. And it's an amazing life. Now. So that more people can go there with you. Because I'm going to give you the power to witness to people with signs and wonders following my gospel underneath the anointing. It's going to shake the entire world. And it's not just for you to be popular or cool, but it's for you to take as many souls with you as you can. Or you can just say the sinner's prayer and go straight to heaven. Well, you can't really do that, but if you could, what would you opt for? I give you my life, God. Okay. What you really did was give him access to your life. Now he's going to take it the way that he needs to take it. Salvation is free. It really is. But it will cost you everything. And you've got to be willing to give it. That's the myrrh.
Ingredient number two, the sweet bark, the cinnamon. That represents what he said in Matthew. If any man will follow me, let him take up his cross. When? Daily. Daily. So I don't need to just be a Christian on Sunday. Nope. Sunday and Wednesday. Nope. Sunday, Wednesday, holidays, and a prayer meeting. No. The cinnamon dictates that you apply the myrrh daily. You don't know what the calamus means yet, I'm assuming, but the cinnamon dictates that you apply that daily. You don't know what the acacia is yet, I'm assuming, but the cinnamon dictates you apply that daily. You don't know what the olive oil represents yet, but the cinnamon dictates that you apply that daily. When are we supposed to love our neighbors? Every day. When are we supposed to love our enemies? Every day. When are we supposed to pray? Every day. When would be a real good time to read your Bible? Every day. When would be a real good time to be a Christian? Every day. That's the cinnamon. That's ingredient number two. Everybody say, I am anointed.